The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. And he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. Thanks for being here. Glad to hear it. Yeah, good to be back with you. Father, we have a lot of uh, viewer email that I would like to um, try and get your response to tonight. And uh, the first one can concerns uh, the prophet Elias from the Old Testament, who we kind of mentioned in uh, the, the previous program concerning his role at the uh, end of the world um, and being one of the witnesses and the, uh, the restorer. So we had a, um, a viewer who wrote in and, and asked for a little bit more information about that. If you could talk a little bit more about Elias and his role as the restorer in the end times. He refers to him as, uh, as Saint Elias and says that... Uh, Actually, July 20th is the feast day of St. Elias in the traditional Carmelite liturgy. He also um, mentions that there are certain uh, priests in his area that, that offer a votive mass of St. Elias. So, Father, could you give us a little more information uh, on Elias or St. Elias as he's referred to here? Well, he says that there are certain priests in his area who offer votive mass of St. Elias. And I wonder, are they Carmelites? If it's something that is specific to the Carmelite order, then ordinarily, in order to offer a votive mass like that, I would think they'd, you know, they'd have to uh, uh, be somewhat bound to the Carmelite order. You know? But you see, the Carmelites have a special devotion to St. Elias, or the prophet Elias, uh, from the Old Testament. They consider Elias to be um, not only a great prophet, but as they mention, a, a very holy man with a very distinct role to play in the uh, salvation of souls. You see, there was a time when the prophets of Baal, the pagan prophets of the, the tribal gods, had really taken over Judea and all of Israel. And uh, they had hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal the prophets of the true God were actually in hiding for fear of Jezebel and uh, you know, the cruelty that she had against the worship of the true God. And uh, the only prophet who actually would stand up and confront them was Elias. And he actually challenged them openly. He challenged them to uh, let heaven decide, as it were. He met them and uh, to have a kind of showdown, a sacrificial showdown, if you put it that way, um, where they would gather all the prophets of Baal. I think there were 400-some prophets of Baal showed up for this, <clears throat> for this contest. <clears throat> and they would try to offer sacrifice on a stone altar. And they would beseech, they would beseech uh, you know, their god, gods to accept the sacrifice. But the sacrifice, uh, the carcass of the ox just lay there on the stone altar um, from dawn till dusk. Nothing, nothing happened to it. And Elias uh, derided them for their false belief. So he demanded that the sacrifice be switched and the, the sacrifice was placed. And he even said, now pour water all over the altar and all over the sacrifice. And they doused it with water. They soaked the altar and the wood and everything else, um, the sacrifice. And then Elias prayed and a uh, bolt of lightning came down and the sacrifice was immediately consumed in flames, showing God's acceptance, the true God's acceptance of the sacrifice. Now, this was actually uh, following a long, long period of drought, a divinely inflicted period of drought because of the apostasy, and the, the, um, because of the idolatry 
you know, of the of the people following these prophets of these false prophets of a false god, Baal. So um when when the sacrifice of the true God was, was made and the prophets of Baal were shown to be false prophets of a false god, um this made quite an impression on the people, needless to say. <laughs> but there was also seen over the um out oh, oh, kind of over the promontory out of the sky a very large cloud that suddenly formed and it was in the form of a, of a foot a human foot curiously enough and uh, what it brought to mind in the uh, minds of the fathers of the church was the prophecy of the crushing of the head of satan by the foot of our lady and so elias has always been associated and, and on Mount Carmel, of all places, okay, the, the Carmelites draw their devotion to that miracle of the acceptance of the sacrifice, the formation of the cloud, uh, which uh, symbolized the triumph of Our Lady over Satan, uh, representing even her Immaculate Conception and her uh, Immaculate Heart, but also the end of the drought and the bringing of the rains, then uh, life-giving rains to the people. All of that converged at that moment. So Elias, uh, the Carmelites, Mount Carmel, the Blessed Mother, the foot that had crushed the head of the serpent, uh, the deliverance from the drought, all of those things have everything to do with the spirituality of the Carmelite order, who uh, really trace the spirituality of their of their life back to Elias and that great confrontation. And um, so it is not surprising that they would have a unique devotion to the prophet Elias over that. And on top of that, we have the, the question of Elias being taken up by God, the fiery chariot, and uh, actually being held, as it were. Uh, there are those who believe that he was taken into paradise and he... Uh, actually survives there and is being held there by God for a mission to come. No wonder, therefore, that you know when when the emissaries were sent to John the Baptist, they asked him, "Well, are you Elias?" Uh, and he had to tell them, "No, I am not Elias." Uh, but our Lord said, "Yes, he was Elias, but he was Elias in the sense that he filled the role of Elias uh, as a restorer." Uh, and as a precursor of our Lord, John the Baptist certainly filled the role, but he was more than the prophet, more than the prophet, John the Baptist. But in any case, uh, to get back to the point, uh, the question of Elias being referred to as Saint Elias, as uh, I think a very uh, incisive mind pointed out recently, <clears throat> that Elias did not die. He is not in the beatific vision of God in heaven right now. And so to refer to him as St. Elias is a bit of a departure from the norm in terms of, you know, we talk about human beings who are now in the beatific vision of God in heaven. And they are saints and the angels and archangels in heaven. Uh, we name them St. Michael the Archangel, St. Gabriel, right, and uh, St. Raphael because they are in the beatific vision in heaven right now. <clears throat> to refer to someone who is not yet in heaven as a saint might be um, a departure from the norm, but it is not in any way un-Catholic. After all, St. Paul addressed some of his letters to the saints who are in the various churches. And in referring to them, he was using the word in the sense, not a canonized saint or not a saint who is already in heaven, but those on earth who are in the state of grace and are faithful to Christ. So he referred to them more in the sense of the holy holiness, like the holy souls. We might even think of the term Saint Elias as being the holy Elias. He's still alive. And he still has a mortal life because he is going to die. <clears throat> we know that is true according to prophecy because he's going to return to earth as one of the two witnesses the other being Henoch, another uh, more ancient patriarch who was uh, 
and I, th- I think the father of Methuselah, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, who is uh, who is taken by God also, and who walked with God, and uh, so the two of them will return, uh, as we know from the book of the Apocalypse, as the two witnesses to confront the Antichrist. And actually to accomplish also the conversion of the Jews. Um, But I would not feel that I could offer a um, voted mass of the Holy Elias myself because I'm not uh, in any way connected with the Carmelite order. Mm -hmm. I would think that'd be something specific to that religious order, but I'd have to look into it. I don't know that much about it, honestly. Uh, It's just that our writer mentions that connection. Yeah. Specifically, yeah. but uh, last week we talked about Father uh, Kramer <laughs> and Father Kramer's book, the the Book of Destiny. I hope a number of our our listeners actually have received the book or are going to do so and begin to read it because I think you'll find it rather interesting and very pertinent to the day, today's events in church and in the world. Father Kramer has this to say about the two witnesses. He talks about, chap- he, he gives quite a bit of time and uh, a lot of commentary on chapter 11 of the book of the Apocalypse. Chapter 11, about the two witnesses, for one, that's the second woe, uh, their death, their resurrection. The chapter 12, the great sign in heaven of the woman, uh, giving birth, and the red, the dragon, and uh, then chapter thirteen, uh, which talks about the coming of the beast, and uh, the second beast, the the little beast, right, who has as as a false prophet. Those three chapters are very very interesting. They comprise probably beginning page two hundred fifty two hundred fifty one. <clears throat> in this volume, the Book of Destiny, uh, all the way up to um, right on through page 350, so about 100 pages, that's, I would say, of this, uh, this printing of the Book of Destiny. And it's all very, very interesting and I think very pertinent to today. <clears throat> but uh, I, I actually had printed this out ahead of time because I wanted to say a few more things about these two witnesses because Father Kramer says that he believes they will be the ones who will govern uh, the faithful during this time um, and that they will represent um, a, truly a restoration, the restoration of the faith in the face of a great apostasy. This is what he said, on, it says on page 256, The two witnesses in our text have the function of restoring all things. The definite article used before, quote, olive trees, and he cites the olive trees from a prophecy in the book of Zacharias, the prophet, uh, talking about these two olive trees representing two individuals. And he says that this is a prophecy of these two witnesses who will come toward the end of the world. The definite article used before olive trees and lampstands refers to the prophecy of Zacharias and makes Zerubbabel and Jesus, not the Jesus Christ, but a person of the Old Testament, types of the two witnesses. In both instances, they are anointed ones. Perhaps at the time of the two witnesses, all governments will be hostile to the church. Elias may then revive the purity, influence, and power which the church possesses in her spiritual endowments. And Henoch may restore the Christian foundation for the governments of the nations. So they they do, according to Father uh, Kramer, have their restorative uh, mission here to restore a a great falling away from from the faith, actually to restore the lost faith. And to restore to the church, you know, her um, her influence and power, he says here. Okay, that indicates that there was a great fall, a great falling off, a great falling away, and these two witnesses are coming to address that and to reverse that. The olive tree is the symbol of God's mercy, 
and the oil of the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. The seven lampstands are the seven churches to which the apocalypse is addressed. And in Zacharias, the golden candlestick was the theocracy. But here the lampstands are persons who are clothed in sackcloth. As olive trees, they do not forebode destruction to the world, but mercy. Their office symbolized by the sevenfold candlestick and the seven golden lampstands is to enlighten the church and the world by preaching an example and to restore God's kingdom on earth. As olive trees, they shall convert many, especially of the Jews, who shall then be saved from the deluge of devastation which shall sweep over the world when Antichrist and his followers meet their doom. They will bring back to the world the peace of Christ. <clears throat> so they do talk about the restoring power of these mm-hmm. men and their mission. And the olive tree uh, symbolizes that because the, the oil of the olive is used as an anointing salve and a balm uh, against illness and injury. But they also have great power against the enemies of Christ. So they're going to restore the church to her dignity, uh, an indication that the church will have been dragged through the mud. He says in here, dragged through the mud by clergy, by lax, worldly, apostate clergy that will drag the church through the mud. And these two men will come into the world and they will raise it up again. Curious. Interesting, encouraging. But he also continues in verse 5 here of chapter 11. The two witnesses will read men's minds and will strike dead by fire, issuing from their mouths anyone who conspires to injure them before he can carry out his nefarious purpose. So they are, they are restorative to the church, but they are the enemies of evil. And uh, those who would attack the church, um, they will have the power to um, actually wipe them out. You know, they'll have great, great power. Fire, uh, let's see. Fire fell from heaven at the command of Elias and killed the soldiers of Ochazias. Oca- Oca- the power of the two witnesses will be so much augmented that by a word they can slay their enemies as if by lightning. They will mete out death not only to those who would injure their person, but also to those who will try to hinder or frustrate their work of conversion. So that is the work. A work of restoration is a work of conversion. Notably, the Jews, right? But also the Catholics who have been beaten down at that time, but are trying to be faithful. During the three and a half years during which they continue their work, They will testify by word and miracles to the divine origin of the Catholic Church alone, condemn all scandals within it, bear witness to the divinity of Jesus Christ, and expose the imposture and blasphemy of Antichrist. Among Christian nations, this would seem quite superfluous, because they have this prophecy of St. John and other prophecies of the Old and New Testaments proclaiming who was the Savior, and foretelling the sure advent of false Christs and false prophets. But among heathens and Mohammedans, it will be necessary to prove the divinity of Jesus Christ, and by that time there may be little belief in him among some once Christian nations. This seems to harken back to what Our Lady said at Fatima, about this almost, almost universal loss of faith, entire nations falling away, that he seems to be indicating here. Russia exemplifies today the possibility of a nation forgetting Christ within a quarter of a century. He's talking about Russia in the 1950s. By their testimony, the two witnesses will reap for themselves the hatred of Christ's enemies, for they will expose the falsity of heresies and discredit them to absurdity and lead to the truth all who sincerely seek it. The hypocrites will then turn to Antichrist. So he said, all of those who do not seek truth, all of those who do not love the truth, <clears throat> will turn to Antichrist. And they will hate these two witnesses because they are telling the truth to the world. So, uh, in any case, there's much more he says about these uh, two witnesses. He even points out that the 1,260 days afforded them 
to work corresponds to the public life of our Lord, that they will have that amount of time in order to uh, withstand the Antichrist and uh, just uh, and, and right, right in Jerusalem, the Antichrist, he says, will make his, his headquarters in Jerusalem. And uh, Elias and Henoch will confront him to his face right there in the streets of Jerusalem. And the Jews who embraced the Antichrist originally as their Messiah will reject him and will be converted, a great number of them. Read the Apocalypse chapter 7. You can see the testimony with regard to that. Um, And of course, the the great sign that God will show uh, that... um, that uh, he is still God in heaven and very much in charge, and the Antichrist is not, is the resurrection of these two. Mm-hmm. Because the Antichrist will keep their bodies as trophies to basically flaunt in front of the world um, and uh, as though he has main, you know, ultimately triumphed over them uh, until the electrifying news travels the world that they have risen and um, are very much alive and they will actually rise into heaven. So um, there, that will be a, a very clear sign of the truth of what they're saying, the divinity of our Lord, in a sense mirroring his own resurrection and his own ascension. Wow. Uh, so it will be very powerful times, no doubt about it. Um, are we living through these times now? Well, I, I, I believe so. Um, the Antichrist is in the world, I believe. St. Pius X opens his first encyclical by um, proposing that very thought, right? That if the Antichrist is not already in the world, as foretold by St. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he may well soon... Uh, be coming into the world. This is uh, from St. Pius X's encyclical of 19, October 4th, 1903, just two months after he was elected the Supreme Pontiff. And uh, his encyclical titled A Supremi. One should look that up. That's why he says he was not, he didn't say he was humble to become the Pope. He didn't say he was honored to become the Pope. He said he was, hum- he was terrified to become the Pope precisely because of his expectations of what was coming on the church and the world. Mm-hmm. And he felt, <clears throat> no doubt, very inadequate. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's what humility does. You know? mm-hmm. That's why a man like him will depend on the power of Christ. Because, as St. Paul says, strength, the strength of God is perfected in our weakness. And uh, when we're willing to humble ourselves before him, then his power can work through us. Did St. Pius X? And it will work through these two, these two witnesses, too. Mm-hmm. So, in any case, I know that's a lengthy response to that question of our, uh, of our uh, email contact there, but I think he might have raised two or three questions mm-hmm. in the one email. So. Yeah, no, this, this is definitely a fascinating topic, Father. We've had, um, even just from our last program, just, just mentioning this topic, we've had a lot of feedback from that, um, just people that, that were fascinated with this topic. But I, I wanted to ask, Father, you've, you've obviously read, read um, at least uh, um, many passages of this book. Does, does Father Kramer uh, say anything about Henoch or Elias having any kind of uh, authority or power to solve the issue of, of the papacy and the question of state of vacantism? Will they have any kind of role um, in, in regards to the papacy? Well, the word state of vacantist or state of vacantism does not appear anywhere that I know of in the Book of the Apocalypse or in the commentary of Father Kramer, okay, but you wouldn't expect it to anyway. But if you read the um, what Father Kramer comments about the two witnesses, he does make some very interesting allusions that <coughs> um, the, um, he, he talks about the, the woman with the child, and he talks about the dragon who is seeking to devour the child, and he, uh, he, he brings up the question of the world powers interfering in papal elections, and finally persecuting the true pope to the point where he is driven into exile or murdered, uh, which is very interesting considering the fact that we do have record of, uh, from 
The memoirs of Cardinal Tisserand that Pope Pius XI was poisoned to death by the personal physician of um, Mussolini. Um, it's contained in his personal papers, which were mistakenly given to his sisters, Cardinal Tisserand's sisters. Um, uh, and then the question about Pope Pius XII, I mean, there, there are indications, and I don't know what evidence there is, okay, but there is talk that Pius XII himself did not die a natural death, but was slowly poisoned to death. Now, I don't know that, okay, and I don't know if anyone does. Uh, there's at least speculation to that effect. So uh, we can't be terribly surprised that a true pope would be targeted for that, right? Um, but in any case, um, that uh, the two witnesses, Elias and Hinoch, uh, coming to earth will actually be the ones to lead the faithful, uh, to preach the faith, to raise the church uh, to the from the state of desperation. Not not that she's hopeless or apostatized or uh, despaired, but her she's in desperate circumstances, <laughs> uh, according to the apocalypse, and uh, that they will be here to raise the church from that. Uh, abject state to which he's fallen. Uh, the Antichrist's purpose, Father Kramer points out, will be able to entirely subjugate the church to, to the state, and that is a pagan state, and that is to himself. And he will want to subjugate the church to himself through a usurper. He even indicates that this false prophet of the Antichrist, the, the second beast, may be that usurper who will try to exercise his power from Rome, that uh, the beast would set up his, his world headquarters in Jerusalem, and the second beast, the false prophet, would try to exercise his power in Rome to consolidate the world empire of the, of the Antichrist in Jerusalem. So... Yes, I think there are allusions to this. There are, there are um, certainly very poignant implications in Father Kramer's analysis. Um, but does he address the question of Sedevacantism head-on? No, explicitly not that I've seen. All right. Uh, well, Father, if you are up for it, um, I wanted to kind of get into a little bit of a different topic. We had um, a viewer with a couple of questions about uh, Father Francis Fenton. Mm -hmm. um, he says that um, previously you've mentioned that you visited him in, in Colorado shortly before he died, and while there you challenged him about anathematizing those who still accepted John Paul II as the Pope. Uh, but this viewer wanted to know, Father, what was Father Fenton's response to, uh, to your questioning of him. We never really got into that. Uh, Father Fenton didn't actually respond to that. Really? Yeah, he didn't give any direct response to it. He didn't, he didn't say yay or nay, that I recall. <clears throat> and I think I would, because I'd gone to talk to him specifically about that point. Yeah. And um, uh, I'd known Father Fenton for quite some time, even before I entered the seminary. My parents... Um, had arranged, especially my, my father had arranged for Father Fenton to come to Florida to address a fairly large crowd gathering. I think there must have been, oh, maybe 300 people gathered. And Father Fenton came to warn about the, um, the rise of communism, Marxism in the country and in the church. <clears throat> and um, he was very, very forthright in his speech, which people really appreciated because he would really level with you, and he wouldn't mince words. Um, he'd speak in a very charitable way, but he'd speak also in a very clear way. Uh, so he was able, really, to give a lot of, uh, not only enlightenment to people, but to inspire them to practice their faith uh, with more devotion and realize that it really is the church militant, and uh, it's time to... Uh, uh, cast off, you know, the uh, the lukewarmness and become serious about being true Catholics. Uh, Father Fenton was from Stratford, uh, Connecticut, as you know, and 
after I met him, I must say I was very impressed by him and his ardor and his manifest love for the faith and his zeal for for, for our Lord. And um, so we kept in touch. As a matter of fact, Father Fenton tried to start a seminary at one point, and I signed on and went up. Um, I was uh, about 20 years old at the time, maybe not even that. Yeah, about that. <clears throat> and so... Um, um, actually, as a result of that contact, we actually flew down to Campos, Brazil, to meet with uh, Bishop de Castro-Mayer. And um, our meeting with him was interesting. And I say we, I mean, one other seminarian and I went down there. And then uh, we went on to uh, Acone from there to meet with Archbishop Lefebvre uh, sometime later. But uh, in any case, um, that was all, you know, with Father Fenton, um, I'd say, with his blessing, right? Uh, Father Fenton was a chain smoker, so he was never very healthy. And when I saw him, he only had part of his stomach left, and his lungs were not very good. And so I was very impressed how dynamic he was, and considering that he subsisted on a diet of jelly donuts and black coffee. That's, that's my recollection of him. In fact, I, that's probably the only thing I ever saw him actually eat. <clears throat> but it was very dynamic, and he was just uh, filled with uh, a zeal for the faith. Um, so um, since we had a long friendship with uh, family and personally uh, long acquaintances, acquaintance with just the two of us, I felt very comfortable going out to, Cal to uh, Colorado to see him. This was after the consecration of Bishop Kelly. <clears throat> um, and I wanted to raise the question of state of Vicantism with um, Father Fenton. And I'll explain why in a minute, <clears throat> because that was really the question. But um, as I mentioned, my last meeting with Father Fenton was in 1995, and Bishop Kelly had been consecrated by Bishop Mendez in 1993. Father Fenton was not aware of this. Father Fenton did not know of Bishop Mendes's plans. Uh, I don't know how well he knew of Bishop Mendes. Uh, he might well have known about him through my father. <clears throat> it was my father and uh, Father Fenton were in contact, um, as my father and Bishop Mendes were in contact. But I don't know if they actually ever met each other, Father Fenton and Bishop Mendes. In any case, uh, Father Fenton was not apprised of Bishop Mendes's plans. <clears throat> uh, Bishop Mendes asked us not to, uh, not to make it public uh, what his intentions were. We understood at the time Bishop Mendes had had a TIA, a transient ischemic attack, a, a slight stroke, and he had just gotten out of the hospital. He had already suffered pneumonia, also double pneumonia. And uh, at that point, actually, I'd, I'd flown out to Colorado or to California to anoint him. And his pulmonary care specialist, uh, Dr. Yamanaka, stopped me a couple of days later. I told you about that. Right. And just said with all seriousness, I don't know what you, that is I, had in that little black case with the holy oils. But keep using it. It brought your bishop back from the edge of death, he said. Now, Dr. Yamanaka, I don't know. I understood he was Japanese descent. I don't know what, if any, faith he had. I had no idea. I never discussed it with him. But, he, but I smiled when he said that because any priest who's been a priest for long enough to anoint a number of people knows the power of the sacrament of extreme unction. And so I smiled, but he must have thought I was smiling condescendingly because he actually became a little irritated that I smiled at him. And he said, I'm not kidding, I mean it. And he walked away. So I thought, my goodness, he's very deadly serious about this. <clears throat> he believes that this, but he doesn't even know, he doesn't even know what it is, actually saved Bishop Mendes' life. <clears throat> and uh, to hear him say that in such a resolute <laughs> manner, uh, just kind of just drove home again what I knew very well as a priest. The power of extreme unction is phenomenal. It is it is remarkable. It is splendid. And uh, we, I 
always give thanks to God for that. Um, as a matter of fact, in the course of that uh, week that I was there with Bishop Mendez, as he was in fact recovering from that double pneumonia, I anointed uh, three other people who had the faith, and uh, they were all in, in critical care. They all they all walked out of their lives. So we uh, gratefully accept that uh, great sacrament from our Lord. But in any case, Bishop Mendez, having had those health issues, um, asked us um, not to broadcast what his intentions were because he didn't want to be besieged. Besieged by people calling him and saying, great, we hear you're going to do this, you know, yes, by all means, you know. And or people besieging him and saying, no, whatever you do, don't do this, you're going to get in big trouble. Or the bishop calling him, you know, of, of, uh, of the local ordinary in California and threatening him with mayhem. <laughs> Who knows what else? He was in no physical condition to put up with all that. Um, and so, um, in any case, uh, so not only did not the bishop, uh, I'm sorry, not only did Father Fenton not know, what Bishop Mendez's plans were, but really nobody else knew either. That we just honored Bishop Mendez's request. Um, he physically was not very strong, but mentally he was very much with it, and he knew uh, was very cognizant of um, what he would be dealing with. Okay, if uh, his plans were made public at that point. So, in any case. <clears throat> When I went to see Father Fenton a couple of years later, uh, it was precisely to uh, talk to him about something that he'd voiced uh, ten years before, about 1985 or so, maybe a few years later. He had um, written that, um, I think it was John Paul II at the time, was the Pope. We have to accept him as the Pope. And... Uh, that's pretty well it, you know, we just have to accept him. And uh, then, some years later, scandalized, no doubt, by all of the heretical and, and uh, well, just downright offensive to pious ears statements and actions of the Novus Ordo Pope's pontiffs, he had come to the conclusion personally that it was impossible that they be popes, right? And uh, but I thought he was on the verge of anathematizing anybody who didn't agree with him. So I thought, well, let's go out. It's, as far as I'm concerned, Tom, I think people generally go through a kind of a process <clears throat> with regard to the situation with the papacy. Uh, in the light of the Novus Ordo changes, I see them at first wanting to find a way to somehow justify, if not justify, to, to um, avoid, avoid the issue of whether what the Novus Ordo Popes have done, like John Paul II and so on, to, to say, well, can a real Catholic Pope do such things? And I think it's such an emotionally charged issue for a lot of Catholic people that they, they can't face the fact that this really does raise the question of whether or not someone can be the vicar of Christ on earth or the supreme pontiff of the Catholic Church if he does such things that are destructive of the faith, damaging to souls, um, even leading souls to hell, uh, blaspheming Christ. And uh, I think the natural tendency, and I know I had it too, was to say, well, look, no matter how things appear, it can't really be that bad. You can't really question that the, the Pope, because if you do, where does that leave us? You know, that, that puts us right on the edge of the cliff. And so we, we just can't question that. We have to hold on and trust God that no matter how bad it gets or what terrible things they do or say, that they, they still you know, have to be the Pope, because obviously the Church can't stand without the Pope. <clears throat> but then I think the next step is where they... Really, the Novus Ordo pontiffs do things that are so blasphemous, so outrageous, so sacrilegious, that it kind of pushes us over the edge where we think, no, it's impossible that the vicar of Christ on earth could do something so outrageous and so 
damaging to the faith, so uh, offensive to Almighty God, and so lethal for souls. It's impossible. This is totally incompatible with the papacy, the office of the papacy. And uh, so the state, then someone becomes a state of accountist, and resolutely so. I'm absolutely convinced now, they, they've convinced me that they can't be popes. And I think when they get into that mode of thinking, um, they're so personally convinced that their attitude is, well, if I see it, then obviously everybody else has to see it too. It's absolutely clear. It's impossible that anybody of goodwill can't see that. So then they become state of accountants, and I consider that to be sort of the, the teenage years, <laughs> you know, in a sense, well, if I see it, then, you know, everybody else has to see it too, and if they, if they don't see it, there's something wrong with them. But then I think uh, with a little more maturity and reflection, we begin to think, okay, as convinced as I may be about this, as convinced as I am about this, and without retreating from my conviction, I have to admit that it can be very confusing. It's not only an emotional issue with a lot of people where they just can't face it, but they are legitimately confused about the issue. And even though I don't agree with them, and I think they're being illogical, that doesn't mean that they're, they're a bad will. They're trying to find their way through to solve this very serious conundrum. And they, they find there's a dilemma, and they can't resolve that dilemma in their mind. And so at that point, I think we get to the point where we say, well, look, I have my own personal conviction of that, and I'm entitled to it. The church herself has told me in the past that there are certain theological positions that are certainly not un-Catholic, and I'm entitled to have that position now. But I can't impose my own theological position, in this case, on everybody else, and just say anathema to everybody else. So that, that gives you a little explanation. Uh, understanding, I think, about why I wanted to see Father Fenton, because I, I thought that he had gone from one position and now was taking another position, which a bit extreme. And so I, I went out there to, to speak with him about that very question, and I, I, I just pointed out to him, well, you know, Father Fenton, and I had great respect for him. Um, I, I considered him to be like kind of a patriarch among the traditional Catholic clergy, <clears throat> a great hero of the faith, and... Uh, it always will, you know. And um, so I spoke with him very respectfully, but very forthrightly, as he would demand in his own, <laughs> in his own right, that uh, some years before he was very resolute in one position. Now, some years afterwards, he's very resolute in the opposite position. And I said, I, I think that um, that indicates that there, we have to be somewhat uh, understanding of others who are making that progress and trying to work this thing out and not anathematize those who haven't quite, you know, gotten there yet uh, to agree with us. Because we see people who are making that progress, uh, just as we ourselves did. Um, and so we have to, uh, you know, beware of... Um, Assuming the mantle of infallibility and assuming the mantle of decreeing dogmas that everyone must adhere to, especially in a matter like this that is so not only supercharged emotionally, but which also is such a, a puzzle, uh, a conundrum, as I say, for Catholic people. I personally think that what Father Kramer says in the book of the Apocalypse helps to clarify that very question of the, the papacy, the situation with the papacy during these times. Mm -hmm. And um, that it, it has actually resolved for me, to a great extent, a puzzlement I had. And that puzzlement was, <clears throat> well, if, if the Novus Ordo popes are really new order popes, and they're, they're supreme pontiffs of the new order, that they can't, at the same time, be the supreme pontiff of the Catholic Church, which is the opposite of the Novus Ordo, the New Order, and which is marked for death by the Novus Ordo, which wants to swallow it alive. And um, the question is then, well, if the Novus Ordo popes are not validly popes, then they can't 
they have no authority to name cardinals because cardinals are created. They're put in a position as cl to be clergy of Rome so they can vote for a successor to the Supreme Pontiff when he dies or resigns, as the case may be. And if popes do not have the papal authority, then they can't name cardinals. And if there are not cardinals, if the cardinals are not cardinals, they cannot validly elect a Supreme Pontiff. And if you have um, like all of the cardinals appointed by those whose authority is doubtful, they're doubtful, cardinals. And anything they vote for or choose is doubtful. And this leaves the church in a real problem. And this is why, uh, because of that prospect, I've always kind of held back, you know, reserved judgment on this matter, because I see there are questions, serious questions, that are not, have not been answered. And after voicing this problem myself a number of times, I saw that Archbishop Lefebvre himself wrote exactly that, that thing, that very same idea. And so I was encouraged by the fact that we were thinking along the same lines there, that uh, it's not, uh, as it were, a slam dunk, you know, theologically. Um, but when I see here Father Kramer writing in the 1950s about the communists and others trying to interfere in the election of the Supreme Pontiff, uh, persecuting the Supreme Pontiff unto death or exile or captivity, and then the, the great beast mm -hmm. with his false prophet and a usurper in Rome seeking to uh, assert authority, and this is uh, ecclesiastical authority over the faithful throughout the world, I realize, you know, this, this question has been raised and addressed, and although this is an interpretation given by Father Kramer, it has some authority behind it. And, uh, you know, one sees in the inspired word of the Apocalypse uh, a foundation for that interpretation. And that the uh, Elias and Henoch, well, in a sense, the way is cleared for them then, coming into the world to oppose the Antichrist and exercising that ecclesi the true ecclesiastical authority um, to really teach the faithful, convert souls, um, and even provide a basis for the uh, restoration of Christian nations on the face of the earth. I mean, he seems to indicate that Elias is the one who's going to exercise the ecclesiastical authority and leadership of the church at that time. And Hedak himself uh, kind of the, established the basis for a Christian society, you know, a secular society, which is not really secular, but really devoted to Christ. And the, the two of them together, um, and they're speaking with the voice of uh, of, of, of profound faith that they are going to overcome all the arguments of the Antichrist and convert all of those who are of goodwill and who love the truth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, you know, uh, one would have to read it for himself to um, see if he gets the same thing out of it that I do. <laughs> gotcha. And I invite you to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Father, I think we can end with that. We got through a lot tonight, and uh, it's rather encouraging. So uh, thank you for all of that. Anything else you'd like to add before we close? Well, I find it very encouraging, too. And that, uh, that doesn't take away the fact that Father Kramer makes it very clear these are going to be hard times. Mm -hmm. He says that um, only those who are willing to give up everything but their faith uh, that, that, that they are going to stand firm and Elias and Henoch are going to uh, gather them all in, right? And that those who are attached to the things of the world, who love anything more than our Lord Jesus Christ, anything other than our Lord, they're going to ultimately apostatize to the Antichrist. So that's encouraging, but kind of scary too. It's a challenge to us, therefore, to purify our intentions. And if we're worldly, we're going to have to ask God to please rescue us from that danger we're in and give us uh, a, 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 a just overwhelming, all-encompassing love for him that trumps, triumphs over all other loves. Um, 
It reminds us of uh, words of St. Louis de Montfort, who said that uh, the, uh, the saints of the last times, and this is what he's referring to, the saints of these times, will be such great saints that the saints of the early days of the church, we're talking about great martyrs like St. Cecilia and St. Sebastian, even St. Peter and St. Paul, I mean the great martyrs, that the saints of the latter days will be like the cedars of Lebanon compared to the shrubs, um, little bushes. And, um, you know, people puzzle over that. Well, how can... How can saints of the last days of the world tower over, as it were, the sanctity of the early martyrs of the church? Can't imagine that. And uh, I think, again, the words of Father Kramer help us to understand when he tells us that in these days, the division between those of Christ and those of the world will be so stark that unless one has a, a, a perfect love, as it were, for, for Christ and have just an absolute devotion to him, uh, that weakness that remains in them eventually will cost them their lives and their souls, and they will be swayed by the Antichrist. And so it is up to us now to pray for the grace um, which we should all aspire to, in any case, that is a perfect love for God. Uh, nothing else will, nothing else will, will serve the purpose of keeping us faithful to him in the times ahead. Uh, but the fact is, our, our Lord's words stand, and they are encouraging words. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. So there, that's where our confidence is. And we know the graces will be there. That's the good news. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Father. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.